anything that's placed before God in a person's heart is idolatry. And that idolatry is an adulterating the person's relationship with God. And it happens over and over and over again. Hello, and welcome to this edition of That They Might Know, a podcast dedicated to proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ. I am your host, Dr. William Mazella, and our teacher is my friend and brother in the Lord, Joe Durso. After enjoying this discussion of God's Word, if you are seeking discipleship or biblical counseling, please email us. Now for today's message. Dear Heavenly Father, it is amazing that you can use sinners saved by grace. And of all the people throughout all the centuries and millennia that have been used by God, going back to Enoch, that you... Like you took him, you, he walked with God. He has the testimony of walking with God, a sinner, saved by grace. And so it has always been. Oh Lord, that we might understand the things that will be spoken today, things concerning grace and mercy and forgiveness, and especially this matter of repentance. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you give an awareness to me, to the hearers, Lord, may this, this be a time when your Holy Spirit comes and abides and bring a message, brings a message from your word. I ask these things in Jesus' name for his honor, his glory, his pleasure. Amen. This is episode 44, and the title of it is Repentance Properly Explained. The, from the series, The Cultural Christianity. I'm deviating this week from the new series, The Names of God, and from time to time we'll slip back to cultural Christianity and just add to it. We, it's good to know the times in which we live. It's good to know what it is that presses in on us and tries to keep us from being changed, and it's good to know what we need to, what we need to be changed from not be a part of any longer. And so that's why we'll just, we will have a little bit of jumping, but mostly we'll be in names of God. I want to begin this message with a statement that sums up church evangelism covering the last three centuries. In the 18th century, God gave to the world a great awakening. The preaching of men like George Whitfield and Jonathan Edwards in England Scotland, North America had wide-reaching effects worldwide for centuries. It led to an uh, extra, extraordinary missionary effort during the 19th century that covered the globe. In many ways, evangelism was spirit-filled. People were transformed by the gospel message, and because of that, they relied upon the Holy Spirit in great numbers to risk their lives for Jesus Christ. The message proclaimed was not man-centered, it had no hint of coming to get something from Christ, but was devastating to the people who heard it. In the first half of the 20th century, there were revivals in Wales that like um, the Great Awakening. And it was so powerful that men moved their nation of unredeemed people in the direction of God. 
And it wasn't men doing the moving. It was God using men. But God who did the moving. During the latter half of the 20th century, unfortunately, Christianity has taken a downturn from its former glories. The health and wealth gospel teaches people to come and get from Christ a worldly life right here and now. Seeker-sensitive churches teach their congregants the fine art of amiability, as if that were the new definition of love. The God who sent prophets to Israel to warn them of impending doom has now, in the sight of the church, become harsh, out of date, and out of sync with the new God of love alone. Words and phrases like divine wrath, anger, hell, and out of sync, they're out of sync with the new God of love. Where the worm dies not, you're not likely to hear, weeping and gnashing of teeth has been stricken from the pulpits. Many methods have been devised to coax people into the church so that untaught and unlearned Christians, even though they hear the Bible preached every week, can evangelize others. Sounds strange, I know. Some of these methods are for spiritual lures, just to name a few. Evangelism explosions, there's these three circles. Uh, on and on they go. Websites offer evangelism with titles such as Seven Ways to Share the Gospel Without Being a Jerk and How to Share the Gospel Without Arguing. We're even told that Bill Hybels and Matt Middleberg uh, share six different approaches to evangelism that will expand your view of evangelism and help you find the right style to fit your personality. It would seem that in the midst of all these instructions about evangelism, two things have been left out. First, Jesus' word to his disciples, and I quote, Remember the word that I said to you, a slave is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will persecute you. John 15, 20. And second, the Holy Spirit's ministry within Christians. Quote, So the twelve summoned the congregation of the disciples and said, It is not desirable for us to neglect the word of God in order to serve tables. Instead, brothers and sisters, select from among you seven men, full of the Holy Spirit and of wisdom, who may put in charge of this task. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith and of the Holy Spirit. Some from Cilicia and Asia rose up and argued with Stephen. But they were unable to cope with his wisdom and the spirit by whom he was speaking. Now this is taken from Acts 6, uh, 3, 8, 9, 10. The point here is clear that men during the apostolic age were not unusual or should be considered unusual according to saving a soul that God does. Because when a soul is saved, a person is filled with the Holy Spirit. Gifts may change. And according to the God-given faith, how those gifts may operate may differ, and I wouldn't say different, but that they don't operate at all. Though all men, you know, some are just meant to be janitors as if they couldn't open their mouth and declare the gospel. Yeah, that's really not a New Testament concept. 
Christianity has been reduced to rote memory, mechanical repetition, mimicking the words of others, in denial that God is alive and able to speak through his people. That's just a statement that I'm making, which I hope to show the reason why in the course of this message. So the question is, how did all this change take place in the 20th century? Now I'm going to start by saying this out of a conversation I had just this morning with a dear friend on the phone. And in that conversation, he's very much a historian, more than I am. And um, his, his thoughts are exactly what I would expect uh, from reading and studying the New Testament, that the early church is a church that cut out a piece of the world for itself. It's not a building where people collect on a Sunday morning for an hour and then go off and leave their, lead their lives as though those lives, lives were just like everybody else. But the, the, the apostolic church, it was a life, that, a life within a community that gathered together they relied on one another, they gave to one another, they supported one another, and together there was a loving community that made the, the world stand up and take notice. Now the problem with that is it only goes on for so long before persecution comes and they, the world seeks to destroy such a thing. Uh, maybe that's a price that the present day church doesn't want to, and not only present day, but in, in, in the history of the church has not wanted to go down that path. I understand it. I understand fear. I understand all those things. But if we're going to call ourselves a church, then we should do it according to what the scripture lays out. So the, in answer to how did all this change play, take place that I'm referring to in the 20th century, let's consider, without going into details, the way corruption always takes place by Satan attacking the word of God. Has God said are the words by which he leads his blasphemy of God, which he said to Eve in the garden. The way I will seek to prove that there has been an alteration in the gospel message is by teaching the doctrine of repentance. We have to get repentance right if we're going to get the gospel right. And to get the gospel right is to get what effects proceed from the gospel when it's rightly understood and when it takes its place in a person's heart. So what place does repentance have in the gospel message? Let me say this. It has first place as demonstrated by the ministry of John the Baptist. I'm going to go down why repentance has first place and for numerous reasons. First, in the ministry of John the Baptist, Mark 1, 1 through 4. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, just as it is written in Isaiah the prophet, Behold, I am sending my messenger before you, who will prepare your way. The voice of one calling in the wilderness, Prepare the way of the Lord, make his path straight. That's a quote from the Old Testament. And then verse 4, John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness, preaching a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So John came preaching a baptism of repentance. Baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins. 
You know, for a Gentile to become a proselyte to Judaism, they had to be baptized. And baptism was a symbol, symbolized death and rebirth for the Christian, which was amazing that he came and he was baptizing Jews because that was like the Jew saying, I'm not really a Jew, which those Jews weren't. You know, you're not just a Jew scripturally because you're born of the seed of Abraham. It's not just genetics. A true Jew is a Jew with the faith of Abraham. And so that's why John came preaching a baptism of forgiveness. John came preaching death, a death and resurrection message of what did the Jews have to repent? Their unwillingness, number one, to acknowledge their sinful condition. This condition is demonstrated throughout the Old Testament. I mean, one thing that Israel never did was repent. So he came preaching a baptism of repentance. The, God, the repentance has first place as demonstrated by the ministry of Jesus Christ. You say, well, that wasn't complete. Okay, let's see what Jesus came preaching. Jesus came according to Mark 1, 14 and 15. Now, after John was taken into custody, Jesus came into Galilee preaching the gospel of God and saying, the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is hand at hand. Repent and believe in the gospel. Repent always precedes, always precedes believing in the New Testament. Look it up. Why is that? Because without repentance, men are incapable of believing, which really does a hurt to the Arminian view. But that happens to be the scriptural or presentation. It's repent and believe. It has first place as demonstrated by Peter and the Twelve on Pentecost and following. Get this, Acts chapter 2, quote, Now when they heard this, they were pierced to the heart, that was everything Peter was preaching, and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, and this isn't just Peter, it's, you know, as I said, all twelve, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, first word, repent. And each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ. A baptism of repentance. A baptism in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. He doesn't even mention faith there. Now, faith is an integral part of receiving Jesus Christ into a person's life. But I'm not trying to change any of that, but I'm only reading what's here before us. Repent and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins. Peter's emphasis on the first day of the church was not even upon faith as much as it was upon repentance. Verse 39, and with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on urging them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. From, from what? from this perverse generation. Worldliness is anti-repentance. Get that. Worldliness is anti-repentance. People are good. People don't need to repent. They might need Jesus to fix things. Fix things. Not them. They might need to fix things. Uh, but, you know, we're not going to do repentance. Repentance has a horrible connotation in the world, and people just make fun of it. They... They ridicule it, any, anything but repentance. Sadly, it's 
It's more than dripped, but it's flooded into the church. This concept of repentance isn't important. Jesus said, and I quote, Then Jesus said to his disciples, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Acts 16.24 Jesus advocated self-denial as a necessary means of discipleship. Get that? Self-denial. Martin Luther nailed to the door of Wittenberg, the church there, his 95 Thesis. In it, in the fourth part of the 95 things that he listed, he said it this way. The penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self. The penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self. That is true inner repentance. That is true inner repentance. So penalty of sin in that it it destroys the soul. It ruins our thinking and the truth. And that remains within a sinner all his life long in this life until he becomes, until he dies and he, he enters into that place where it says the souls of righteous men made perfect. So the man is righteous in the sight of God. He's righteous and then he experiences a transformed life. But a sin comes alongside and tries to ruin that. And so there has to be a hatred of sin. Namely, till our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. And that's how he completed that fourth point. The penalty of sin remains as long as the hatred of self That is true inner repentance. That is true inner repentance. Hatred of self. Namely, till our entrance into the kingdom of heaven. Such repentance is seen in Peter, allowing himself to be reproved by the younger Paul, as written in the letter to the Galatians. Peter was to be blamed, Paul said. I mean, he was siding with the Jews and something that had to do with circumcision, you know, and is separating himself out as if there were a difference between Jew and Gentile. He was corrupting the gospel even though it may not have looked like that to him. But what does he do? I mean, he accepts Paul's reproof. He's held accountable by the younger Paul, and he continues this hatred of self and a continuing repentance. Without that repentance, there's no proof of salvation. Without such repentance, uh, a man is not likely to be saved. When again the Jew would not repent, God used them as a light to the Gentiles. Acts 13, 48 and following. When again the Jew would not repent, now I'm talking about Israel, God used them as a light to the Gentiles. Acts 13, quote, the next Sabbath nearly the whole city assembled to hear the word of the Lord. But when the Jews saw the crowds, they were filled with jealousy and began contradicting the things spoken by Paul and were blaspheming. Paul and Barnabas spoke and boldly said, quote, It was necessary that the word of God be spoken to you first. Since you repudiate it and judge yourselves unworthy of eternal life, behold, we are turning to the Gentiles. For so the Lord has commanded us. I have placed you as a light, and this is a quote from the Old Testament, a light for the Gentiles that you may bring salvation to the end of the earth. 
When the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord, and as many as had been appointed to eternal life believed. As many has been had been appointed to eternal life believed. The Jews were being left out, and by and large, not totally, and the Gentiles were being brought in. And this is for a purpose of being a light to the world. Israel failed to repent. It has first place, that is repentance, has first place in the gospel. It has first place in the church. This is fourth. It has first place from Jesus' messages to the seven churches in Revelation. You know, four of the seven are told to repent. One did not want to repent, which is the one willing to suffer, not willing to suffer and die for Christ. It was simply told not to fear. Let me say that again. Four of the seven were told to repent. One of those seven, just they would not repent. Uh, another one was didn't have any repentance in it. There was actually two. And in that one, uh, they were just told not to fear. They were willing to die for Christ. The second, not told to repent, would be guarded or kept in a state in which it is found in the Greek through a time of testing that comes upon the whole world. That's one of those churches. That's actually the second to the last Philadelphia. The last, even though told to repent, Christ would vomit out of his mouth. That's the non-church. That's not an authentic church. It has the name of being a church, but it had no, and I mean no, evidence of Christianity. Fifth, repentance has first place in the God-given glory of Job. Uh, Job 42.6. This is what Job, after going through all his testing, and after having gone into this huge argument with his quote-unquote friends, says, therefore I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. This is a man who God said was the most righteous on the earth at the time and was not guilty of anything for which the devil would bring all this disaster upon him. He ends in conclusion of his conversations with the, his friends, therefore I despise myself. That sounds a lot like dying to self, uh, denying oneself. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes, end quote. I take back everything I said, and I sit in dust and ashes to show my repentance. Two times in two short sentences. He despised himself, he repents, and then he sits in dust and ashes, ashes to show his repentance. Sixth, repentance, first place in the gospel, first place confirmed by Israel's refusal to repent of sin. You know, Israel's redemption in Egypt through the Passover, when the death angel came and hovered over and pressed over the Israelites, and, and they were redeemed by placing blood on the lintels and the doorposts. When the death angel saw the blood, he passed by. 
The problem with Israel's salvation is that it wasn't salvation at all, because it wasn't complete. The entire nation was left to die in the wilderness and never entered the promised land. That first generation, total generation, just wiped out. Deuteronomy chapter 1, verses 2 and 3 says this. It is 11 days' journey from Horeb by way of Mount Seir to Kadesh Barnea. And then it says in verse 3, it's an 11-day journey. In the 40th year, on the first day of the 11th month, Moses spoke. He's speaking to Israel in Deuteronomy, and he's given the second um, discourse regarding the giving of the law. This was the second giving of the law. And it took 40 years to make an 11-day journey. Reason? All of those people died in the wilderness, never having entered into the promised land. You know, in Ezekiel chapter 16, verses 60 to 63, it says, Nevertheless, I will remember my covenant with you in the days of your youth, and I will establish an everlasting covenant with you. Two covenants, we know, the old and the new. Then you will remember your ways and be ashamed. When you receive your sister's, both your older and your younger, and I will give them to you as daughters, but not because of your covenant. Now, under the old covenant, they were asked to keep the law. And so in verse 62, he continues, So I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall know that I am the Lord, so that you may remember and be ashamed and not open your mouth again because of your disgrace when I have forgiven you for all that you have done. The Lord God declares, you know, the opening your mouth doesn't mean people will never speak in eternity. What it means, they will never speak against God. It means they will never justify themselves before God. It means repentance will have done its complete work and brought men to a new state of living, which is acceptable before God. And that, in part, is repentance. The Israelites only complained for 40 years. I mean, if you brought me out here to die in the wilderness, I mean, they just griped and complained and complained. And they never repented of their idolatries. And they put God to the test 10 times during their wanderings. And they never repented of their sins. Now, make it clear. I mean, God makes a huge point in springing them out of Egypt but also makes a huge point and he never brought them into the promised land. And sadly enough, people profess faith in Christ, but it's a faith without repentance. We know that repentance has first place, but what exactly is repentance? In order to understand properly repentance, one must properly understand sin. Because see, we're repenting of sin. If we don't get sin right, we won't get repentance right. So I'm going to lay out briefly, best I can, with all my limitations, exactly what sin is biblically. Because of sin, the heart of God has been broken. When God formed man, he made both male and female. Genesis 1.27, very important that we understand this. Quote, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him, male and female, he created them. So when you, you put the male and the female together, you get a more complete picture. I don't want to 
say anything that would hurt a person who's single as if they're not complete. If you're in Christ, you're complete. Right now, I'm just talking about the completeness of the, of the, the human creation in that he makes man Adam, and then he takes from man the bone, and he, he fashions it into a woman. So when God formed man, he made him both male and female. The first marriage is a covenant relationship. And in this completeness of the covenant relationship, God is speaking to the relationship he wants with his people. And so in that way, it's complete. Not that you're not complete as a person, but you're not complete in completing the relationship pictured with God and his people through marriage. So marriage is a covenant relationship predicated upon the promise of being united to only one spouse for life. Predicated upon the promise of being united to only one spouse for life. Genesis chapter 2, 22 to 24. And the Lord God fashioned into woman the rib which he had taken from the man and brought her to the man. Then the man said, At last, this is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. For this reason, a man shall leave his father and his mother, be joined to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. This is, goes far beyond what happens between a man and a woman in that it's a picture of the unity, the union meant to be between God and his people. Now this didn't take place in the garden. It wasn't really meant to. It was meant to take place through identification, the identification with Christ through salvation. I can't go into that in this message. I just want to get this union fixed in your mind between a man and a woman as that picture of God and his people. To break one aspect of marriage is to break the other. Third, sinful humanity broke the marriage covenant with the Creator God when they trust when they trusted in Satan over God. And that's what I meant by the aspects of this marriage relationship. Genesis 3 once says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any animal of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God really said, You shall not eat from the, any tree of the garden? He, he here questions God's integrity, his character, his motives, and the woman eventually bought into it. She goes back with an idea in her head about what took place. And so then the serpent lays on her the second devastating blow, which is an absolute lie. You certainly will not die, for God knows in the day that you from it, your eyes will be open and you'll become like God. So he goes from, so he goes from, so Satan goes from questioning to out and out accusing God of withholding from Adam and Eve their sight and godliness. And godliness is the very reason for which they were created. I mean, this couldn't have been a, a more pertinent lie. Satan lied by accusing God of lying. I mean, it's so much like people. I mean, we really need to see ourselves in this. Third, God used Israel to clarify divorce. Hear that? Third, God uses Israel to clarify divorce. And this whole divorce 
is a picture with Israel of all humanity. Isaiah 51 says, this is what the Lord says. Quote, where is the certificate of divorce by which I have sent your mother away? Or to whom of my creditors did I sell you? Behold, you were sold for your wrongdoings. And for your wrongful acts, your mother was sent away. This picture here is, and, and, and it's confusing in the New Testament for some, just what happens in divorce. Divorce is only legal when adultery occurs. And it's never meant to be. I mean, I'm not advocating divorce. God hates divorce. That's clear in the scriptures. But in Matthew 5, Jesus said this. It was said, whoever sends his wife away, let him write her a, a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except for the reason of unchastity that she plays the harlot, makes her commit adultery. If she hasn't already committed adultery and you send her away because she burnt the toast, you're making her an adulterer, which if you remarry, you will become an adulterer too. That's, the God, that's God's teaching, not mine. It is adultery that breaks the marriage vow. Now when it comes to divorce, uh, when people come under the blood, everything is forgiven. I, I want to emphasize this. People want to make, some people want to make divorce or, you know, as the unpardonable sin. That, that is not in scripture. Every sin ever committed has in it a weight of eternal punishment. You hear that? Every sin. So if you think that you can go into this life and you're okay because you never remarried, because you never divorced, and those who remarry and redivorce, that sin is on their, really? That sin is, is on their record for what? For eternity? Can they never be forgiven of that sin? Or just in this life, they can't be forgiven of that sin. So they can't be used in ministry. They're disqualified. Yeah. Uh, you, you really need to rethink that if that's where you're at. Adultery breaks the marriage vow. Adam and Eve broke the marriage vow. And here's the real point. With God when they trusted Satan rather than God, because marriage is built upon a vow or promise to be faithful to one another. Before the intimacy takes place that in a way makes the marriage f complete, there is the promise that precedes it. I'm never going to have anyone else in my life, and when that is broken, now that's when divorce takes place. The act makes it complete. But in the mind and the heart is where sin starts. So when Adam and Eve believed Satan rather than God, they forfeited the allegiance to him. God demands, he, he demands allegiance, faithfulness from the beginning. Just remember, nothing took place except nowhere is it sinful to eat fruit. It was forbidden fruit. And that forbidden fruit Biting into the fruit was an act of disobedience. The decision to get there was where the sin began. It leads, as in James. It takes place through temptation. But when sin is conceived, and that's where the will sets a person off and they do the thing. When in that conception, that's sin. Jesus said, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. It's in the heart where sin begins. 
So their lack of faith became faithlessness on their part. They have forfeited their allegiance and the whole human race was plunged into sinful behavior because it abides in our hearts. The faithlessness of Adam became the sin of adultery in humanity toward God. The faithlessness of Adam became the sin of adultery in humanity toward God. Idol, idolatry and adultery are parallel sins in the scriptures because it's about allegiance. Anything that's placed before God in a person's heart is idolatry. And that idolatry is an adulterating the person's relationship with God. And it happens over and over and over again. Now you got to get this because we're talking about repentance, what repentance means. And repentance isn't primarily from individual sins because all those individual sins amount to idolatry. That's why idolatry comes first. And covetousness, covetousness is last. We're coveting something more than the love of God. We're coveting something more than God. And that's idolatry. And it's idolatry that is throughout all the other commandments. All the other commandments are ways in which we are idolatrous. And all the other commandments are just ways in which we have separated ourselves from our allegiance, our covenant relationship with Almighty God, which happened through creation. God created us. We didn't create ourselves, uh, Psalm 100. So this is what we talk about when we talk about repentance. One, sin is first the breaking of our relationship with God. Sin is allegiance to Satan over God or anything that would tempt us in the, from the world of flesh and the devil. Sin is the divorce of humanity from a covenant relationship with God as Israel. Four, sin is an adulterous relationship with the devil and unfaithfulness to God. Five, sin is painful to God and, to de- and destructive to us. Sin, you realize that how sin, how painful sin is to God? I don't have time to go into all the details of the pain, but this pain has been painful to God in the whole existence of mankind since the Garden of Evil. Because when God sees us with the unfaithfulness, he sees us like a wife. And scientists teach us in the 20th century that actually divorce is more painful than losing a a loved one. Because, you know, in a healthy person, it's so painful. And it can go on for... I mean, I suffered for the loss of a dog for two years, okay? Uh, so I know suffering over loss, and it still hurts me when I think about it. I, I, I'm living a healthy life. I don't dwell on it. It doesn't keep me from living a happy life. It, you know, and, and so that's healthy. And I can do that because I, I know uh, what eternity is, and I know what this life is and how fast it's passing away. And I have er- everything from the Word of God in me that makes me healthy. And that's what people need when in such a loss. But, you know, divorce, it just goes on and on. I mean, the person doesn't die, they're there. And that, that, that rejection is always there. And it's always painful. It's ongoing. It, did, it didn't end. When God sent his son to die for the sins of the world, you know what he faced? Rejection. It's not absence that pains people. It's rejection 
that pains us all. So what is brokenness? I'm going to take this from Psalm 51, where uh, Nathan, the prophet, had come to David, told him about his sin to Bathsheba, and now he's broken before Almighty God. The people didn't matter, and it comes out in the psalm. Be gracious to me, God, according to your faithfulness, according to the greatness of your compassion. Wipe out my wrongdoings. This is a man who is not making any excuses for himself, as we often do. Oh, you know, it's my wife. It's not me. Oh, it's, it's, my, it, it's, it's my husband. It's not me. Uh, oh, it's the church's fault. It, it, just blame shifting. There's no repentance in any form of blame shifting. The person who is repentant can't see anybody else. He can't see his kids. He can't see his parents. He can't see anybody, his partner. All he sees is himself. He doesn't necessarily mean that he doesn't know that other people are at fault too. That's not the issue. Self here is so big in the right way because self is, can be so destructive that he can't see anybody else. Wash me thoroughly from my guilt. Guilt is laying on the repentant one. And cleanse me from my sin. He sees the sin like Job did. For I know my wrongdoings. Okay, it's, he's not clueless. And my sin is constantly before me. I mean, it's, he's always in sin, and now it's over his head. He's got to do something with this. Against you, you only, I have sinned and done what is evil in your sight. See, this is where those other commandments fade into obscurity because it's about idolatry. Idolatry is the overarching sin. I've just said it. I'm saying it again because to David... You and you alone. He sinned against a nation. He sinned against Bathsheba. I mean, her poor husband was killed because of his sin. He was let out to die on a battlefield. But when David is praying and when he's seeking God, it's against you. You only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Why? Because God got really big to David. So that you are justified when you speak and blameless when you judge. Okay, God gets all the credit for truth now to the, to the repentant one. God's right, I'm wrong, we're all wrong, the world is wrong, God's right. May all men be liars and God is true. Verse 5, behold, I was brought forth in guilt and in sin. My mother conceived me. Okay, I mean, he gets it. He really gets how wicked he is and how long he's been wicked. Behold, you desire truth in the innermost being. See, that's not me as a sinner. And in secret, you will make wisdom known to me. That comes from God, not from us. Oh, that we would get that and stop with being so scholastically achieving. Verse 7, purify me with hyssop and I will be clean. Cleanse me and I will be whiter than snow. I mean, we need something white here. We need to be cleansed in a purifying way because I am filthy. I'm laying in the gutter. I'm in the sewer. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have broken rejoice. A repentant man is a broken man. You know, George Whitfield took 30 days to come to Christ. He couldn't eat. He almost died because his sin was weighing so heavy on his soul. Is that how people come to Christ today? Or they come with a smile on their face? I was broken. I was shattered. I'm a wicked man. 
but God did that in me. I saw my wickedness. I know for a fact, if I were to die without Christ, I would go to hell and I would deserve every second of it. Hide your face from my sins and wipe out all my guilty deeds because I can't stand before you. And I'm adding this last part, unless you do. And this is what David is saying. I mean, you got to get rid of this. And he no sooner says the getting rid of it that he says this, create in me a clean heart. This is no, you know, I'm forgiven and I can go and do what I want. This is create in me a clean heart, God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. This is a changed man. I need to be different. Without that, there is no repentance. Do not cast me away from your presence. I mean, he just like the, the deer pants for the water brook. He's panting after God. Do not take your Holy Spirit from me. I mean, he was so low, so devastated that God, who is so faithful and so true, and he walked with him so long, I mean, he's in fear of losing his salvation. People say, I am going to the whole Old New Testament thing. Don't go there. Do not go there. The sinner in the New Testament can pray this prayer because we're to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And if you don't understand the loss of the Holy Spirit's presence when you're living in unconfessed sin, well, you're missing the boat here. You don't know what the Bible is saying about these things. So, restore to me the joy of your salvation and sustain me with a willing spirit. The willingness to sin gets transformed into the willingness to be obedient and submit and subject oneself. Then I will teach wrongdoers your ways and sinners will be converted to you. Don't jump on the bandwagon because you just recently received some, pe- some people got came to Christ because God can use an ass to speak to the prophet and he can use a wayward prophet that was not a prophet at all to speak even the truth and people can make changes. Watch how you view who you are. Test yourself. Prove yourself to be in the faith. That takes a heart looking. No superficial things no outward things that God can do prove you're, you're, you're a saint and not a sinner. It's a heart that we need to look at. Save me from the guilt of bloodshed. God, the God of my salvation, then my tongue will joyfully sing of your righteousness. Obviously, there was bloodshed. He had a man killed. But there's a lot more in that bloodshed than just the man who he had, Uriah the Hittite, he had killed. Verse 15, Lord, open my lips so that my mouth may declare your praise. For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I will give it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offering. So just going through the religious motions doesn't get anything done. Whether it's sacrificing a lamb or it's singing a praise song in church, or it's just attending church on a Sunday morning, or whatever you're doing that's religious, being baptized, taking the Lord's Supper, going through the motions, God doesn't require. He doesn't doesn't take pleasure in religious motions. The sacrifice of God are, hear it, a broken spirit. A broken and a contrite heart, God, you will not despise. This is... David, understanding that repentance is a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. Your favor, do good to Zion, 
Build the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in righteous sacrifices, in burnt offerings, in, in whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. The person who offers or any form of religious ordinance or sacrifice or whatever it might be, once things are set in motion and they're made correct through repentance, once there's favor in Zion, once God is pleased with a person in their heart, once there's the building of the walls of Jerusalem and making it into a city of God, then, and only then, is God pleased with religious doings. Broken. I want to break down these words. Broken is brokenhearted in the, in the Hebrew. It's a man who has a broken heart. What's he broken? What is he broken heart? What's he lost? He's, he's lost God. He's lost God. He's broken hearted over God. He's broken hearted that he's caused God pain. He's broken hearted because he's an idolater. He's divorced from God and he's ca caused the kind of pain that only unfaithfulness in a marriage can cause. When the one you've devoted your life to all life long and then there should be no other. Another one comes in, and that awful picture of unfaithfulness with another person in the most intimate way possible. This is the pain that God experiences in loss of humanity. And God doesn't experience pain like we do. We're wicked, wretched sinners, and we experience emotional pain. And then people go out and they kill the spouse. God dies for the spouse. God dies for the ones he's chosen. God dies for the ones he's ordained to eternal life and placed on them his grace. God pains like the pain of a God who's perfectly holy, perfectly just, perfectly true, and perfectly loving. Not us. We're not perfect in any way. We're evil. God calls us, God says to to people about prayer. You know, if you being wicked know how to give good gifts to your children. So there's a faithful, loyal father, mother, and they're going to give a good gift to the child and their heart's just full. And God, Jesus says, if you being wicked know how to do that, how much more will your father in heaven? How much more? Infinitely more. So the infinitely more that is infinitely more loving experiences infinitely more pain. Think about that. Think about Jesus' death on the cross in that way. Think about God who has experienced generation after generation of rejection in an adulterous way. And here we are. He's still long-suffering. He's still going with the plan. Broken equals broken-hearted contrite in heart. It's broken in spirit. Broken in spirit. You know, the word for spirit there is to exhale. <sighs> you're not sucking in the breath of life. You're letting it out. It means something unsubstantial. You know, substantial like this is real life. I've come to give you life and to give it more abundantly. This is unlife. This is unsubstantial. It's exhaling life. It's crushed it means. Spirit means crushed. Exhaling life in a ruined way. A ruined life. The person who repents is broken hearted over what he's done to God and he recognizes his life has come to nothing. 
Isaiah standing at the doorway and the, the train of God's robe is filling the temple. He can't even go in. And what does he say? I'm a man of unclean lips among a people of unclean lips. The very thing meant to use for God's glory is unclean. This is repentance. Contrite heart. Again, crushed. Broken hearted. His life is out. It's gone. It's It's not substantial. And he's crushed. This is repentance. This is why in revival, these kind of things take place. The heart of God has been crushed by man's idolatrous and adulterous ways. So I'm going to conclude this by talking just for a couple of minutes about Psalm 22, because here's Jesus hanging on the cross. This is Jesus, he who knew no sin, becoming sin for us, And what's the expression of his heart? What do do the words say when he's hanging on the cross? This is him in our place. This isn't Jesus. This is Jesus taking sin to himself in the sinner's place. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Far from my help are the words of my groaning. This This is like a spouse saying, I've been faithful all my life. Why are you doing this to me? Only, only he's saying it to the Father who's pouring out his wrath on the sinners. Only Jesus is in the way. My God. I cry out by day, but you do not answer, and by night, but I have no rest. You know, there's a sense in which Jesus is hanging on the cross by day, midday. And then the lights go out, and it's dark. And he goes from rejection by the world that's rejecting him, whether it's Jew or Gentile, whether it's leader or ordinary people. He's just rejected by everybody in the daylight. And when the lights go out, then God is rejecting him. Then God is pouring out his anger and his wrath and his rejection. And what are the words do we read but... I am a worm and not a person. <laughs> he takes to his, his soul, his heart, and his mind that he's a worm because that's what a sinner is, not a person. You know, we want to look at Calvin and we want to say, you know, we're made in the image of God. and We want to focus right there. Let me tell you where we need to focus as repentant people, that we're worms and not even people. You want to walk in humility? It says humble yourself in the sight of God and he'll lift you up. You want to humble yourself? See yourself for what you are. As I have to see myself for who I am. A worm. Jesus says, I'm poured out like water and all my bones are out of joint. My heart is like wax. It's melted within me. The sun is burning. The righteousness of God is burning. I'm I'm just melted out to nothing. My strength is dried up like a piece of pottery and my tongue clings to my jaws and you lay me in the dust of death. You know, the water is the water of life, but it's just dust. For the kingdom is the Lord's and he rules over the nations. All the prosperous of the earth will eat and worship. All those who go down to the dust will kneel before him, even he who cannot keep his soul alive. And on those last sentences there, 
the key point here is we can't even keep our own soul alive, and yet we walk around in such pride like we're it. You know, just this look. I mean, you can't turn on the TV and not see, you know, in people singing and doing all their stuff, and it's just like, look at me. You can't even keep your soul alive. I mean, uh, I mean, we can't move from here to there unless God enable it to take place. I mean, you don't realize how sovereign God is. But that's not humanity. That's not idolaters and adulterers. We think who we are. The sinner's heart that is broken is not broken like a bone into two parts. It's not a machine that no longer works but needs to be fixed. The broken sinner must die so that he can live anew. The problem with much preaching today is there is not sufficient clarity concerning the need for death in the sinner. Coming to Christ is not a desire for God to fix our lives and make us better, or even ourselves. That's not the focus. It's death to self. Coming to Christ is first that we die with him to the world, the flesh, and the devil. Israel's greatest sin was compromise. He didn't, God said, you can't be like the worlds around you. He made different dietary laws. He, he, he put up all kinds of walls because he knew what would happen, and it did. And it's happened in the church, no different. Don't be judging the Jew too harshly. Apart from identification with Christ, there is no becoming a Christian, and there's no identification with Christ without death to self. Romans 5, 1 through 4, we conclude on these verses. Are we to continue in sin so that grace may increase, Paul said? Far from it. May it never be. God forbid. How shall we who died to sin still live in it? Or do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ Jesus have been baptized into his death? Therefore, We have been buried with him through baptism into death so that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may walk in newness of life. Apart from godly repentance, apart from the Holy Spirit working a godly repentance in our hearts, there is no death to self There is no baptism into Christ Jesus' death, and therefore there can be no newness of life. Heavenly Father, these are hard, hard truths. And we live in a culture, the last thing the world has ever wanted to know. And the world has been getting worse, if your word is true, and it is. And the world is getting to a place where dying to self in any way, which is ruining all relationships, it always has. But in the last days, men will be haters of God. I mean, they will be just haters of one another. There will be nothing good. It's going back to pre-flood days when he had to do away with the entire world except for eight people. We're getting there. We're well on our way. We're in the billions of people and the Antichrist is standing at the door and he wants to just take over and rule the world. That is Satan in him. Lord, I pray, make your church 
ready. Allow us, Lord, to embrace the true gospel, a gospel of repentance, a gospel where we see ourselves for what we truly are through the word of God and not through our own delusions of who we are made in the image of God. Yeah, that image was lost. Do we retain it to some extent? Well, sure. Is it a, an extent that would bring pleasure to God? No. We are, in every part, tinged, ruined, dismayed, destroyed by the sin that exists in our lives. It ruins everything. I pray, dear Heavenly Father, that you would open the eyes of the hearers, continue to open my eyes to present-day sins. Allow me, Lord, to continue to die to self, repent from sin, resent, er, repent from the idolatrous, adulterous way that if left to the flesh, we live. Lord, cause us to live in the Spirit, to deny the flesh, to live by faith in the promises of your Word that gives us those promises of a resurrection from the dead, here and now, in part, then completely. And we'll give you all the honor and all the praise and all the glory. In Jesus' name, amen.